Welcome to the Shakespeare Underground, a podcast exploring the works and life of William Shakespeare. I'm Jennifer Newton, and this is episode two, The Law in Hamlet. In this podcast series, we venture into the fascinating and controversial world of the Shakespeare authorship debate. As we look at the plays and poems, we'll investigate why it is that people question their attribution. Today, we'll be speaking by phone with attorney Tom Renier about Shakespeare's sophisticated use of the law and how themes of the law run throughout the play Hamlet, informing plot, character, and relationships, including Hamlet's madness and his tempestuous interactions with his mother. It's a fascinating episode. It's almost an hour and a half long. It'll give you a whole new way to understand and appreciate the play Hamlet. About our guest today, Tom Renier is an attorney who works in the appellate division of the Public Defender's Office in Miami. He holds law degrees from Columbia Law School and the University of Miami School of Law. He's also taught at the University of Miami School of Law, including a course on Shakespeare and the law, and at the John Marshall Law School in Chicago. His article on the law in Hamlet appears in the fall 2011 issue of Brief Chronicles and in the forthcoming Oxfordian edition of Hamlet, edited by Jack Shuttleworth. His articles on the law, including the law in Shakespeare, can be accessed at his website at https sites.google.com slash site slash Thomas Renier. That's R-E-G-N-I-E-R. Welcome, Tom. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Well, to start off, what got you interested in studying the Shakespeare authorship question? Well, you know, for a long time, I didn't think there was a question. When I was in college, I recall reading in one of my Shakespeare textbooks that there was no debate, there was no evidence that anybody but Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare, and that the truth was that the man from Stratford got a very good education at the Stratford Grammar School, there was no evidence of great book learning in the plays, and that anything he knew about the goings-on in the court were something he could have gotten secondhand. And that was uh, in an introduction by Lewis Wright, who was then the head of the Folger Library. So I never really looked into the subject. And then in the 1990s, there were a couple of articles published in The Atlantic that talked about both sides of the issue. I realized that uh, really there was room for doubt about the Stratford man having written the plays. And I started to look into it a little bit more, little by little. In the late 90s, I saw a rerun of the PBS Frontline documentary about the Shakespeare authorship question, and that got me more interested into it, and that was around the time that I was uh, about to start law school. And what was it you learned here that made you consider that Shakespeare might not have written the plays and poems? Well, one of the things that Wright said, or actually two of the things that struck me particularly about what he said, is that it was a fact that the Stratford man had gone to the Stratford Grammar School. And he said that there were no facts that you could prove in a court of law that showed that anybody else wrote the plays. Well, you can't prove in a court of law that the Stratford man went to the Stratford Grammar School. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't, but there are no records to prove it. There's nothing, no documentation whatsoever. And then the point about there's no great book learning in the plays, well, that's really hard to swallow. There are so many books. If you go into a good undergraduate library, you will find rows and rows of books written on Shakespeare and all the sources that he used, all the knowledge that he had. Entire books have been written about Shakespeare's knowledge of such subjects as the law, medicine, pharmacy, classical mythology, folklore, biblical lore, natural history, agriculture, gardening, music, heraldry, precious stones, typography, horsemanship, falconry, military life. This person was very widely read, had vast experiences which he brought into his plays, 
And there's no way that we can figure out how the man from Stratford could have gotten all that knowledge. Now, it isn't that a person who was of humble birth, like the Stratford man, couldn't have been a genius. It's possible that he was. Christopher Marlowe was a genius. He was a cobbler's son. So that's not the problem. The problem is, where did he get all this knowledge? And we don't have any documentation. We have a lot of documentation from the Stratford man's life, but none that shows that he had any kind of education whatsoever. And that point, I understand, is one of the main issues in the authorship debate, that genius might involve enhanced abilities, but it can't give you facts or a specialized body of knowledge. Exactly. Now, if you think that William Shakespeare from Stratford did not write the plays, do you have an idea who might have? I think that the Oxford hypothesis is an interesting one, and I think there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that the Earl of Oxford may have been the author, both because he did have the education that would be the basis for the plays, and also there are so many incidents in the plays that are similar to things in his life, that he may have actually been writing about things in his life. So I don't think that that's absolutely proven, but I think it's certainly a hypothesis that's worth following and that uh, more research should be done on that. Well, I hope you'll talk a little more about that if there are some points of connection with what we'll be discussing today. Because for a lot of people, it is really shocking to hear the works of Shakespeare attributed to a totally different person. Let's move now, though, to the subject of the law. When did you get interested in Shakespeare's usage of law? Well, around the time that I was starting law school, I read Mark Twain's book called Is Shakespeare Dead? And Mark Twain was a doubter about the traditional authorship theory. And one of the books that influenced Mark Twain in writing Is Shakespeare Dead was George Greenwood's The Shakespeare Problem Restated. And Greenwood had said, Greenwood, by the way, was a member of parliament and a lawyer. He said that whoever wrote Shakespeare's plays must have been a practicing lawyer because there was so much about the law in the plays. Mark Twain followed that up and said that whoever wrote the plays must have been a practicing lawyer. So that interested me and made me want to explore the subject more when I was in law school. And I did take a course in law school on law and literature. It was taught by a wonderful teacher, Marzi Kaplan. And in that course, I wrote an article called, Could Shakespeare Think Like a Lawyer? And I studied the law in Shakespeare and also the authorship question and how those two things related. Later on, I started teaching a course called Shakespeare and the Law, and I taught that for three semesters at the University of Miami School of Law. And so it's something that I've continued to study, and I think it's fascinating, and I think that there are more and more connections to the law in Shakespeare's plays, and quite a lot has been written about it, and I think that more will be discovered as we continue to study it. And you received a letter of commendation from Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens for your article, Could Shakespeare Think Like a Lawyer? What did he have to say? I quoted Justice Stevens in the article because he's been interested in the authorship question. And uh, so I sent him a copy of the article when it was published. And about a week later, I got a letter from him. He had obviously read it. He said some nice things about the article. And he asked me to send him another copy of the reprint so that he could send it to a friend in England. So uh, naturally, I, I sent it to him right away. Oh, that's great. Well, you said that Mark Twain had read George Greenwood's comments on Shakespeare's use of the law. In fact, you said that they both thought that Shakespeare must have been a practicing lawyer at some point in his career. Was Greenwood the first person to make mention of Shakespeare's facility with the law? Well, the first person that I know that commented on this was Edmund Malone, who was one of the first editors of Shakespeare. 
Around the 1780s is when he noted that Shakespeare's legal knowledge had the appearance of technical skill. And Edmund Malone was a lawyer himself. He, I believe, was the first to say this. And other prominent lawyers have made comments on Shakespeare's knowledge of the law. Now, I've heard, though, that Shakespeare's use of the law isn't always correct and that he made a few gaffes. Well, several people have made the argument that his knowledge of the law was not that good, but I don't think most of their arguments stand up. For example, in uh, 1899, William Devickman wrote a very small book in which he talked about Shakespeare's legal errors. And let me give you an example. He talks about the line in Love's Labor's Lost where the three scholars swear to keep those statutes that are recorded in this schedule here. And Devickman says, well, that's a wrong use of the word statutes. A statute refers to something that's enacted by a legislature. It doesn't mean just rules that people agree to. And then George Greenwood came back and said, well, actually, uh, Devickman was taking it much too literally. That articles of agreement is a perfectly valid use of the word statutes. And that uh, Shakespeare is using it loosely here. He's not using it in its strict legal sense. And by the way, in one of Shakespeare's sonnets, he has the phrase, the statute of thy beauty. Well, clearly he's not using it in a strict legal sense when he says statute. He's using it metaphorically. And the trouble with most of Devickman's criticisms about Shakespeare's use of the law in the plays and in the sonnets is that Shakespeare's not always using it in a strict technical legal sense. He sometimes uses a legal term metaphorically. So really, Devickman didn't have a very strong sense of drama or sense of humor, really, and so he didn't understand a lot of the times the way Shakespeare was using a legal term. Now, another example where somebody said that Shakespeare made a legal error Two legal scholars, Clarkson and Warren, who wrote a book in the 1940s about property law in Elizabethan plays, they said that Shakespeare made a mistake in Henry VI, Part Two when he referred to Duke Humphrey as the heir apparent. And they said that really the correct phrase should have been the heir presumptive. Well, Mark Alexander recently shot that down and pointed out that the phrase heir presumptive didn't even enter the language until the year 1628. So you could hardly say that it's an error for Shakespeare not to have used a legal term that had not even entered the language at the time that he wrote the play. Right. Kind of hard to fault him for that. So you're saying that upon examination, these mistakes aren't really technical errors so much as just a critic's inability to appreciate the poetic dimension of their usage, or even in the last example, from an ignorance of the history of that piece of the law. Exactly, yes. I don't think anybody's really ever found a big legal error in Shakespeare's plays, except sometimes you'll notice that some of the lower class characters state the law incorrectly, and it's obvious that Shakespeare is doing this on purpose. The lower class characters wouldn't be expected to understand the law, and they usually get it 180 degrees wrong. He's putting it in for comic effect. Right. But how does any of this establish that Shakespeare had legal training? Couldn't he have just gone to a lawyer for advice as needed? Well, that's a possibility. It seems strange, though, when you look at how often the legal terms come up in Shakespeare's plays. And as Lord Penzance says, who was a judge in the 19th century, he said that Shakespeare seems to have thought in legal phrases. And that's the difficulty. It seems like, why is he coming up with these? Did he go to a lawyer and ask for legal phrases? Or he's just thinking about something he wants to write about, and, and suddenly the legal parallel is obvious to him, and he just puts it in. And I think that it's so clearly ingrained into his writing that it's hard to argue that somehow he just went to a lawyer and asked for advice. Shakespeare thought in legal phrases. Can you give us an example of this? 
Yes, in my article, Could Shakespeare Think Like a Lawyer?, I noted seven different ways that Shakespeare uses the laws in his plays and sonnets and other poems. And let me just go through these quickly. Number one would be law or justice as an overarching theme. And of course, a great example of that is Measure for Measure, which is a play in which the law is talked about all the time. Part of the basis of the plot is that a statute that was not enforced for a long time is now being enforced. And there's a lot of talk about the law and justice and mercy and the different justifications for punishment. So it's very clear that that play is about the law. Now, another important way that the law is used in Shakespeare's plays is in trial scenes. And of course, the most famous is in The Merchant of Venice, probably the most famous trial scene in literature. Another one would be extended metaphors using explicit legal terms. And as an example of that, I think of Sonnet 46, and I'm just going to read you parts of it. But the whole sonnet is set up as a metaphor in which the eye and the heart are in a lawsuit over who owns the loved one. Part of it reads, My heart doth plead that thou in him dost lie, a closet never pierced with crystal eyes. But the defendant doth that plea deny, and says in him thy fair appearance lies. To side this title is impaneled a quest of thoughts. Now, that means to decide this title, in other words, the ownership of the loved one, is impaneled a quest of thoughts. That means a jury. All tenants to the heart, and by their verdict is determined the clear eye's moiety and the dear heart's part. So it's actually setting up this whole metaphor about a lawsuit. There's a defendant, there's a jury, there's a verdict. And this is where the whole metaphor is based on the law. And it's very obviously about the law. Now, another way is that he'll use metaphors that have implied legal concepts. By the way, this is number four in my list. And my favorite example of this is in Merry Wives of Windsor. Falstaff asks Master Ford, of what quality was your love? And Master Ford replies, like a fair house built upon another man's ground, so that I have lost my edifice by mistaking the place where I erected it. Now, most people might not realize that there's a legal principle behind this, but the principle is that whatever is affixed to the soil belongs to the soil. So that if you should accidentally build a house on somebody else's property, let's say that you weren't exactly sure about what the boundary line was between your property and someone else's, and it turns out you built it on the other person's side of the boundary line, you might think, well, hey, you know, all the building materials are mine. I'll just take the house apart take all the lumber and so forth, move it over to my side and rebuild the house on my side of the line. Seems reasonable. The trouble was you couldn't do that because once you built the house there, it was affixed to the soil and it belongs to whoever owns the soil. So too bad for you, you lose the house, it goes to the person whose property it's on. But it's an interesting metaphor and it's based on this legal principle, which is not an intuitive legal principle. You wouldn't necessarily expect that it would be that way. None of those lines use legal terms particularly to make their point, but once you know what the law is underlying it, you see that there's a legal concept underlying that whole metaphor. So that's another way that Shakespeare uses the law. Now the next one is he tends to have a gratuitous use of quasi-legal terms. That's the phrase I use. Maybe it's not the simplest way to put it. Basically what I'm talking about are cognates. He uses a lot of terms that have both an ordinary meaning and they have a legal meaning as well. And sometimes you don't catch it so quickly because it doesn't hit you in the face as being a legal term. Would you give us an example of one of these quasi-legal terms? 
Well, of course, this is in contrast to what I said about Sonnet 46, where it's got terms like defendant and verdict, and it talks about a jury. A good example of the opposite would be Sonnet 30, which is the one that starts out, went to the sessions of sweet, silent thought. I summon up remembrance of things past. Well, that doesn't strike you as necessarily being legalistic, but it uses the word sessions and the word summon, which are ordinary terms, but they also have legal meanings. And if you go through that sonnet very carefully, you'll find it also uses the word waste, which has a technical legal meaning in Shakespeare's time. Words like canceled, expense, grievances, account, pay, paid, restored. If you look at the whole thing, there's actually a whole legal metaphor that has to do with accounting, like paying a debt and being repaid and so forth. It's not obvious you can read the whole sonnet and not really think that it's using legal metaphors at all. But if you go back and look at it very carefully, you'll see that that's there. They blend so seamlessly into the emotional content of the poem and the themes of memory and loss. Right. Just another example, summer's lease hath all too short a date. Okay, well, lease is, of course, a legal term. Her pleading hath deserved a greater fee. Pleading, of course, is a legal term, but it has an ordinary usage as well. That one comes from Venus and Adonis. So, again, these are times when Shakespeare uses cognates. Now, my number six way of Shakespeare using the law is paraphrases of Latin legal maxims. I'll just give you a couple of examples. In Merchant of Venice, Portia says, to offend and judge are distinct offices and of opposed natures. Well, that's basically a paraphrase of a Latin legal maxim. I won't read the whole maxim in Latin, but it's translated as no one ought to be a judge in his own cause. And that's just a basic legal principle. So Shakespeare was familiar with that principle, and he puts that principle forth in understandable English terms in Merchant of Venice. Here's one that comes from Measure for Measure. Angelo says, the law hath not been dead, though it hath slept. This is a paraphrase of a Latin legal maxim which translates as, the laws sometimes sleep, they never die. That's pretty much the play in a nutshell. Yes. There's a whole list. Actually, a man named William Rushton wrote a small book on Shakespeare's legal maxims. And he goes through example after example of how Shakespeare used these in his writings. And then finally, number seven in my list of ways that Shakespeare uses the law is legal issues as a pervasive subtext. And my prime example of that would be Hamlet. In Hamlet, there are many legal issues. You wouldn't think it at first. It's not as obvious as it is in Measure for Measure or Merchant of Venice that the play is about the law, but actually a knowledge of the law informs a great deal of what's going on in the play. Just to clarify, Hamlet obviously is set in Denmark. Will you be talking about Danish law or English law? Well, let me say just generally in Shakespeare's plays, English law predominates no matter where the play is set. Even if it's set in a foreign country, Shakespeare is going to be using English law because that's what his audience would have understood. Now, occasionally, there will be some aspects of the law of the foreign country that show through in the play, but it's going to be mostly English law. And so where does English law show up in Hamlet? Most of the characters don't live quite long enough to give us a great trial scene. Well, yes, that's a good point. I look at several areas of law in Hamlet. There's inheritance law or property law, ecclesiastical law, which was the church law. The law of homicide is very relevant to Hamlet. And also, it's possible to look at Hamlet as an example of the law of justice or revenge, to look at it in a more philosophical aspect. I study all of those in an article that I've got about the law in Hamlet that's going to be published probably around the end of November. Well, let's begin with ecclesiastical law. 
What exactly is meant by that? Well, ecclesiastical law was basically the law of the church. The law of the church was applied in many ways, but it was sometimes in conflict to the, the secular law, the law of the common law courts and the law of the statutes that were enacted by parliament. And it particularly becomes relevant in regard to Ophelia's burial. Now, of course, Ophelia's death was doubtful, as they say in the play. It wasn't clear whether she died by accident or suicide. And then the question of insanity comes up. Was she simply insane and she didn't know what she was doing? When she fell in the brook, she apparently made no effort to rescue herself. So is that because she was trying to commit suicide or she was just so insane that she didn't realize what was happening? Now, the way this worked under the ecclesiastical law, even a suicide was not supposed to get Christian burial because basically they were possessed by the devil. Wow. Under the secular law, under the common law, they had a little bit more sophisticated view of it, I think. What they said was that, well, a person who's insane is not capable of forming an intent for which they can be held responsible. And so if a person is insane, we're not going to say that they voluntarily killed themselves. They just didn't know what they were doing. So if the coroner found that the person was a suicide, they were supposed to get a Christian burial. Now, the church would go along with this, but what they would usually do is they would give them, well, sometimes I call it just Christian burial light. They wouldn't give them all the frills, all the horns and whistles that you could get with a Christian burial. They would just give them the bare minimum. Now, one of the clues that we get that Ophelia is getting a Christian burial comes up with the gravediggers. The line that one of the gravediggers has is he says to the other gravedigger, make her grave straight. The crowner hath sat on her and finds it Christian burial. Now, crowner, of course, means the coroner. Sat on her means he's studied it and finds that it's Christian burial. But what a lot of people don't get is this word straight. Make her grave straight. You'll find in many editions of the play that's translated as straight away or right away. So make her grave right now. But actually, another meaning of that, make her grave straight, is make the grave on an east-west axis as opposed to a north-south or some other crooked axis. And that's the way Christian burial was supposed to be done. It was supposed to have the head at the west, the feet at the east. And that was a symbol that you were getting a Christian burial. A person who was a suicide might get a crooked burial or even something less than a burial in the churchyard. Now, would all of this have been obvious to someone of that era? Because Hamlet, when he sees the procession coming, recognizes right away that certain features of the burial indicate that there was something dubious about the way that the person died. Exactly, yes. Hamlet notices it immediately, and he doesn't even know that it's Ophelia's funeral yet, but he uses the word maimed rites. In other words, he sees that the person is just getting the bare minimum of rites that they would normally get when they're uh, being buried under Christian burial. And he said, this does betoken the corpse they followed it with desperate hand for do its own life. So you have an apparently perfunctory service by the priest, and Laertes asks, what ceremony else? He wants more for his sister than uh, just the little bit of ceremony that they got. What does the priest say? Well, he says, her obsequies have been as far enlarged as we have warranty. Her death was doubtful, and but that great command or sways the order, she should in ground unsanctified been lodged till the last trumpet. He does sound pretty grudging about even having to provide Christian burial light. So what is the great command that forces him to go against what he seems to think is the right and natural order of things? 
Well, when he says the great command, or sways the order, great command refers to the statutory law of England, which recognized the monarch as the head of the church. So that basically meant that whatever the statutory law said, whatever the, the coroner said, who was the representative of the crown, the church was going to go along with that. But of course, they went along with it rather grudgingly and didn't give Ophelia all that she could have got. And now, there's a very good article on this by R.S. Guernsey. It was written in 1885. And Guernsey notes that the funeral left out such optional trappings as torchbearers, crossbearers, sprinkling of holy water, singing of psalms or hymns, blessing, Eucharist, and that, of course, Laertes would have wanted these things, but he didn't get them. The priest goes on to add, for charitable prayers, shards, flints, and pebbles should be thrown on her. Now, what he's saying here is he's referring to a tradition that they had that suicides would often, instead of being buried in the churchyard at all, be buried at a crossroads with no headstone or anything, and a stake would be driven through the body. Yikes. Yeah, and people were encouraged to go by and throw rocks and stones at it. So basically what we see is that Shakespeare had a very detailed and accurate knowledge of the ecclesiastical law, and he understood how it related to the common law, and he's able to reveal that tension between the two with just a few key phrases like, make her grave straight, and what ceremony else, and her death was doubtful. Very interesting. And it seems like we also get a look at how people's mindsets must have been evolving. Gertrude's very compassionate sweets to the sweet is a far cry from pelting the grave with stones out of primitive superstitious terror. Yes. Why don't we turn now to inheritance law? Before I talk about this, I want to just mention that I'm indebted very much to an article by J. Anthony Burton, which appeared in the Shakespeare newsletter around 2000-2001, where he talks about property and inheritance law in Hamlet. And I think he brought out some new ideas. Burton says that the references to property law run throughout the play, and it starts in the first scene when Horatio explains about the possible hostilities between Denmark and Norway. It all goes back to many years before when King Hamlet, young Prince Hamlet's father, had been challenged to a man-to-man combat by King Fortinbras of Norway. And the winner would take certain lands that were being wagered upon. Well, King Hamlet won the duel. In fact, he slew King Fortinbras, and so he won those lands. And now young Prince Fortinbras wants to avenge his father's death and get those lands back, and that's why he is getting an army together and talking about waging war on Denmark. Of course, at the end of the play, Fortinbras comes in, and Hamlet gives him his dying voice, and it appears that Fortinbras is going to finally get back the land that his father had lost, and maybe even more. So it's a constant theme in the play. So it opens and closes the play. And then where does it show up in Hamlet's situation? Beyond, obviously, the loss of the crown. How does it play into what we see unfolding at the Danish court? Well, the first question you'd want to ask is, what happens to those lands that King Hamlet had won when he dies? Obviously, they would go to his eldest son, who was Hamlet. So even though Hamlet doesn't get the crown, he should get the lands that he would have inherited from his father. But there may be a problem with that, and it has to do with the whole subject of dower. Now, dower was a woman's right to have a life estate in one-third of the lands that her husband had owned during his lifetime. Uh, So that would mean that Gertrude would have a right to just use or live in or get the rents from one-third of the lands that her husband had owned during her lifetime. Hamlet would get the other two-thirds as the eldest son. But of course, what may have happened is Gertrude married very early after her husband's death. 
Hamlet says, within a month. So that would mean that Hamlet, who had been studying in Wittenberg at the time of his father's death, probably would not have been able to get back to Denmark right away. It would take some time for the message to get to him, some time for him to make the 200-mile trip from Wittenberg to Elsinore. By the time he's done that, Claudius may well have sent a few of his guards to oversee this land that his wife now has a claim to. After all, the law in those days was that man and wife were one flesh, and a woman couldn't actually own anything if she was married. Her husband had control over it. So once they're married, man and wife is one flesh, as something that Hamlet jokes about, Claudius would have had control over the land that Gertrude had a claim to, and since it had not yet been divided by Hamlet, she had a potential claim to any part of that land. And Hamlet makes much of the or-hastiness of the marriage. He bitterly jokes that the funeral leftovers are being reused for the marriage feast. So is his resentment about the speed maybe not just at his mother and uncle's total failure of loyalty to old King Hamlet, but also resentment that it's allowed Claudius to come and take claim of his own inheritance? Yes, there are several evidences in the play that Hamlet is not actually enjoying the feudal rents that he should have gotten from that property he would have inherited. He says, beggar that I am, I am even poor in thanks. When Claudius asks him how he's doing, he says, I eat of the chameleon's dish. Well, that was a reference to an ancient belief that a chameleon could live by eating air. He's basically saying, uh, I don't have enough money for food, I'm living on air. And he tells Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, I am most dreadfully attended, meaning he can't even afford good servants. And so how might things have been different had Gertrude waited longer to marry? Well, if she had waited longer, Hamlet would have had a chance to come back, take possession of his land. He would have been able to decide which third Gertrude would get. And then if she married it sometime later, her husband would have control over that one third, at least during her lifetime. But one of the things you've got to realize is there's a legal maxim, possession is nine-tenths of the law. And in Elizabethan times, it was difficult to have a successful litigation over property unless your possession had been interfered with. So Hamlet never had a chance to take possession because he was away at the time his father died. Claudius has already probably maintained de facto possession by the time Hamlet gets back. And so he's never interfered with a possession that Hamlet already had. That makes Hamlet's legal situation a little bit difficult, the way the law worked under medieval property law. Let me see if I've got this right. So Hamlet's automatic right to two-thirds of his father's estate was essentially blocked by the wicked speed of the marriage, which allowed Claudius to swoop in and take de facto possession of his inheritance. Yes. And what would happen to the situation if the king and queen have a child? Well, that's interesting, too, because it brings in another legal principle, which was tenancy by the courtesy. What Claudius is probably doing, he can't really take total possession or total ownership away from Hamlet, but he can have control for a while because he's acting on behalf of Gertrude. But what if Gertrude should die? Well, he would no longer have a claim because the marriage would be over. Except if he and Gertrude should happen to have a child, then when Gertrude dies, something would kick in called tenancy by the courtesy. And that would mean that Claudius would get to possess the lands for the rest of his life. So that could delay Hamlet's inheritance even further. And that gives added meaning to the phrase, the law's delay in the to be or not to be speech. That's what may be happening to Hamlet. 
Claudius is basically invoking the law's delay and delaying and delaying and delaying Hamlet getting his hands on his inheritance. Well, the inheritance law approach explains a couple of Hamlet's major obsessions. His bitterness about the speed of the marriage, and then with the threat that a baby would pose to his inheritance, it sheds some light on his extreme interest in what goes on between Gertrude and Claudius in their marriage bed. Exactly. Hamlet says, go not to my uncle's bed. And I think Gertrude realizes that this is also in her best interest as well as Hamlet's because if she should have a child with Claudius, she's now expendable. Oh, wow. This makes Claudius look really bad. Well, I guess he's already killed his own brother, so why stop there? Now, Gertrude being expendable, could this be a subtext of the famous closet scene where Hamlet rails at his mother for her physical relations with Claudius? Could his intensity be that he's trying to convey to her not only the threat to his inheritance, but also the possible danger to her own life? Yes, I think that's one of the things that happens. And I think that's one of the reasons that she suddenly is on Hamlet's side. She suddenly understands what has happened. And of course, he tells her that Claudius killed her husband, which she doesn't seem to have known before. Also, this sheds light on the scene where Ophelia is giving out various herbs to members of the court. Because one of the things that she says is, there's rue for you, and here's some for me. Now, there's no stage direction that tells us exactly who she's speaking to when she says, there's rue for you. Harold Jenkins, the editor of the Arden Shakespeare, suggested that Ophelia says this to Claudius because rue was a symbol of repentance. But there's another possible reading. Rue was also thought to induce abortion. Oh, wow. Maybe she's offering the rue to Gertrude, because if Gertrude should get pregnant, that, of course, would put Hamlet's inheritance in jeopardy, would put Gertrude's life in jeopardy. Maybe a little rue could save Gertrude's life. Oh, that's such an interesting possibility. Yes. Now, another interesting point is that Claudius refers to Gertrude early in the play as the imperial jointress to this warlike state. And a lot of critics have interpreted jointress as just meaning a joint ruler. Well, that's a possible interpretation. In Shakespeare, there are often many possible interpretations, but jointress is also a technical legal term that refers to a woman who has a jointure. A jointure was basically an agreement that the woman could make before marriage in which she would give up her dower, her right to one-third of the lands when her husband died, in exchange for a specifically designated piece of land. And why might she do that? Well, the reason was, is usually the jointure was much easier to get. You didn't have to wait and figure out what it was going to be, like the dower would be. You didn't know exactly what dower lands you would get until the man died. But if you made a jointure agreement, you would know ahead of time exactly what you would get. It was usually a lesser quality inheritance than what she would have gotten through dower, but at least it was known and she wouldn't have to fight for it. Yes, we learned a little bit about dower rights in the podcast episode, Where There's a Will, how they'd eroded to the point of near non-existence by Shakespeare's day, which might explain why a woman would opt for the bird in the hand of jointure. Exactly. So there's a whole theme here of Hamlet's inheritance being absorbed by Claudius, aided and abetted by Gertrude, whether consciously or not. In this interpretation, we've got Hamlet, who's impoverished and living on air, We've got Claudius on a power-mad killing spree, possibly with Gertrude next on his hit list once she bears him a child. We've got Ophelia handing out herbal abortifacients to the royal court. 
Inheritance law is not so dry as it sounds, and understanding it certainly infuses the play with a great deal of meaning and color. I think so, yes. Now, there's another substantial reference to inheritance law in a place that you wouldn't expect, the gravedigger scene. What I'd like to do is listen here to a clip, and this is from the 1980 version of Hamlet, starring Derek Jacobi as Hamlet, and it has Tim Wilton as the first gravedigger. Is she to be buried in Christian burial when she willfully seeks her own salvation? Tell me she is. If we'll make her grave straight, crown her as sat on her and finds it Christian burial. How can that be? Unless she drowned herself in her own defence. Tis found so. Must be say offendendo, it cannot be else, for here lies the point. If I drown myself wittingly, it argues an act. And an act hath three branches. It is to act, to do to perform. Our girl, she drowned herself wittingly. Nay, but here you good man, Delva. Give me leave. Here lies the water. Good. Here stands the man. Good. If the man go to this water and drown himself, it is a will he nil he, he goes. Mark you that. But if the water come to him and drown him, he drowns not himself. Our girl, he that is not guilty of his own death, shortens not his own life. But is this law? My Marius Crowner's quest law. Crowner's Quest Law. Now we know the crowner is the coroner, the crown's representative, and we know about making her grave straight. Can you decode a little more of this for us? Well, yes. The grave digger, as I said, the lower class characters usually get the law wrong. He says, say offendendo when he means say defendendo, which is self-defense, and argal when he means ergo. And the scene is actually a parody from a famous law case, Hales versus Pettit, which was decided in 1562. Really? So this comic relief scene references an actual legal case? Well, yes. Now, let me just tell you a little bit about it. Uh, Hales versus Pettit revolved around the suicide of Sir James Hales. And Sir James Hales was a Protestant supporter of Lady Jane Grey, who, as you may recall, was Queen of England for about a week. Then actually, Henry VIII's daughter, Mary, Mary Tudor, the Catholic daughter, became Queen of England, and she gave Sir James Hales a very hard time, and he was imprisoned for a while for his support of Lady Jane Grey. This upset him very much, and he eventually, once he got out, committed suicide by jumping in the river. Well, what happens is when you commit suicide, your goods are forfeit to the crown. And one of the things that he and his wife, Margaret, owned was a lease on some land. And the lease on the land was forfeit to the crown, and Queen Mary gave the lands to a man named Syriac Pettit. And so Dame Margaret Hales, the widow, brought a lawsuit against Pettit for trespassing on her land. Her lawyers made a very ingenious argument. They said that at the moment that Sir James Hales died, the lease went to his wife by right of survivorship, since they were joint tenants on the land. And that the queen's claim to the land did not arise until later, after he died and the coroner decided that he had committed suicide and that he was attainted, which is a legal word meaning his rights were taken away. And so the queen's claim actually arose much later than the wife's claim. So the argument in a way was that the suicide itself was not part of the act of drowning, but only happened later when the coroner named it such? Exactly, yes. It is ingenious, and worth a try, I guess. Exactly. What Syriac Pettit's attorneys argued was that an act has three parts. The imagination, the resolution, and the execution, which is the doing. And they said that the doing 
of the act is the greatest in the judgment of our law, and it is, in effect, the whole. Now, I don't know if this reminds you of anything. To act, to do, and to perform. Exactly. Just heard the gravedigger speech, and the gravedigger said that an act has three branches. It is to act, to do, and to perform. Well, obviously, that is a garbled misstatement of what the lawyers were saying in Hales versus Pettit. And as usual, the lower class characters just get the law all wrong. So how did this argument go over in court? Did the widow get her lands? No, the widow did not get her lands. The court found for Pettit, and they said that the forfeiture related back to the act done by Sir James. The way the court put it, they said, Sir James Hales was dead, and how came he to his death? By drowning. And who drowned him? Sir James Hales. And when did he drown him? In his lifetime. So that Sir James Hales, being alive, caused Sir James Hales to die. And the act of the living man was the death of the dead man. He therefore committed felony in his lifetime, although there was no possibility of the forfeiture being found in his lifetime, or until his death, there was no cause of forfeiture. Oh, this is wonderful. The comedy's built right into the original case. And even in the original, it's a farce within a tragedy. Would this episode have been widely known at the time? Well, the story about Sir James Hales was widely known. There were pamphlets written about it. But the legal implications would not have been known in his time to most people except to people who studied the law and had access to law books and the opinions of law courts. Are there any implications for Hamlet's inheritance in this scene or in the case? Well, one of the things that the court said was that when two claims arise simultaneously, one of which is the claim of the monarch, and the other of which is the claim of a subject, then the monarch's claim is going to prevail. So what they said is that really Sir James's committing suicide was one continuous act from the time he jumped into the river to the time that he drowned to the time that the coroner decided that he was a suicide. So it was one continuous act as opposed to the multi-step death then suicide that was proposed by the lawyer for the Hales team. Exactly. So the moment that he jumped in the river is when it begins. And as soon as he dies, the queen's claim arises as well as the wife's claim. So they arise at that same instant. And guess what? The queen wins over the wife. Let's take a look at how that applies to Hamlet and Claudius. Hamlet's claim arises the moment his father dies. What about Claudius's claim? Well, Claudius's claim doesn't arise quite yet. But Gertrude's claim also arises at the moment that her husband dies. So you've got these two competing claims, Gertrude's and Hamlet's. Now, the only way Claudius can say that his claim arises at the same time as Hamlet's is if he can relate back his claim to Gertrude's claim. And that's where Hales versus Pettit again comes in handy for Claudius. He can use this legal fiction of relation back. Can you clarify what relation back means here? Yes. So once Claudius marries Gertrude, he can say that he's now taking over her claim and that his claim therefore relates back to the time that her claim arose, which was when King Hamlet died. Okay, so once again, it's man and wife are one flesh. Exactly. Man and wife are one flesh. And so he's relating back. And since he's now the king, the monarch's claim is going to prevail over Hamlet's claim. I see. It ties in Claudius being the monarch and how that furthers his claim. Exactly. So it's all very tricky. The fact that the gravedigger scene is a parody 
on Hales versus Pettit has been recognized since the 1770s when uh, Samuel Johnson's lawyer pointed out that it was a parody of Hales versus Pettit. And actually, it fits into this whole idea about property and inheritance law. There's one thing I'm still not clear on. Would Hamlet's two-thirds claim and Gertrude's one-third claim be seen as competing with each other? Well, in a sense, they're competing claims at the time that King Hamlet dies, because there's no division of the land yet. We don't know which third of the land Gertrude is going to get, and normally that would have been Hamlet's decision. But Hamlet was not present at the time of his father's death to make that decision, and so Claudius basically muddies everything up by taking possession of the land before Hamlet can get back. Well, I'm amazed at how deeply inheritance law is woven into the core themes of the play. Yes, inheritance law permeates the play, and actually it makes one more big appearance in the graveyard scene. It's the scene where Hamlet talks about the skull of a lawyer. Now, a lot of people may not be familiar with these lines because it's usually cut out of performances because there are so many legal terms in it that audiences won't understand it. But this is the most densely legal passage in Shakespeare. Hamlet picks up a skull that's been tossed out of the grave by the gravedigger, and he says, Why, might not that be the skull of a lawyer? Where be his quidditch now, his quillets, his cases, his tenures, and his tricks? Why does he suffer this rude knave now to knock him about the sconce with a dirty shovel and will not tell him of his action of battery? Hmm, this fellow might be in time a great buyer of land. With his statutes, his recognizances, his fines, his double vouchers, his recoveries. Is this the fine of his fines and the recovery of his recoveries? To have his fine pate full of fine dirt? Will his vouchers vouch him no more of his purchases, and double ones too, than the length and breadth of a pair of indentures? The very conveyances of his lands will hardly lie in this box. And must the inheritor himself have no more, huh? That was actor Alan G. Armstrong as Hamlet. Well, the legal references here are pretty hard to miss. Must the inheritor himself have no more? Beyond that line, how does this relate to inheritance law particularly? Well, for years, people said that this was just a lot of random legal terms. But actually, I think J. Anthony Burton, whom I mentioned before, who wrote this wonderful article about inheritance law in Hamlet, explains what those are about. He talks about fine and recovery. Fine and recovery was a type of collusive lawsuit where someone who wanted to sell an entailed estate would do a collusive lawsuit to be able to sell it. Now, an entailed estate, let me just explain what that is. By law, it had to stay within the family line. You couldn't sell it. You couldn't leave it to somebody outside the family line. When the person who owned it died, it had to go to his heirs. So if a person wanted to sell it, what he would do is he would arrange a lawsuit like a fine and recovery, where the person that he wanted to sell it to would sue him and say, you're trespassing on my land. That's really my land. And then the person who was going to be the seller would say, oh, well, no, I bought this land from so-and-so, and he warranted to me that he had good title to it. And then when they get into court, this person never shows up, and he has to admit, well, he probably didn't have good title, and so the judge is going to say, okay, well, it's the plaintiff's land now. Wow. So it was a very tricky type of lawsuit. That was a fine and recovery. And the voucher was the person who was going to say that he actually owned the land and that he had vouched for the value of the warranty on it. A double voucher added a second layer of protection. And recognizance, which is a line that's used in that speech, uh, was a judicial acknowledgement of a debt 
A statute was similar, except that it wasn't made in court, but was made before a mayor or a chief magistrate. And then Hamlet, of course, refers to cases and tricks, which really embraces the entire arsenal of devices for leaving the inheritor with nothing at all, which is the way Anthony Burton puts it in his article. My gosh, bitter words then. Well, it's so interesting that this less famous skull scene, which is considered so trivial that it's cut out of most performances, is yet another vehicle for the theme of lost inheritance. Is there any aspect of this that ties in with the authorship issue? Well, I think it's interesting if you look at the Earl of Oxford's life, you'll find that he had some problems with his inheritance. And actually, there's a wonderful article by Nina Green in the online journal Brief Chronicles. You can find it online very easily. It's called Fall of the House of Oxford. And she points out that actually the trouble with Oxford's inheritance began two years before he was born, when the Duke of Somerset, who was the protector of the realm, abused his position to extort most of the family lands of the Oxford family, the de Vere family, from the 16th Earl of Oxford, who was Edward de Vere's father, under the pretext of a marriage contract for the Earl's daughter. And the way he did this, he had to do some fancy footwork because this was an entailed estate. It was supposed to go down the family line. So he used some of the same legal tricks that are talked about in uh, the Skull of a Lawyer's speech. He forced the Earl to enter into an indenture and a recognizance. Those are both terms that are in that speech. Binding the Earl to marry his daughter to one of Somerset's sons and to transfer the lands of the Oxford Earldom to Somerset by means of a fine. That's a final concord of the type that we're talking about in the skull of a lawyer speech, one of those collusive lawsuits. It seems that these terms and these ideas about inheritance law relate very much to something that had to do with Oxford's life. That's not the end of it. This was all undone by Parliament, more or less, over the next four years. But it still ended up with the Oxford estate not being entailed anymore. It was now held in trust. And in 1562, the 16th Earl died unexpectedly, and his 12-year-old son, Edward de Vere, whom many people think later became Shakespeare or was the man behind Shakespeare's plays, was 12 years old. Now, before the Earl of Oxford died, he had written a will, and he had made Robert Dudley one of the executors of the will. So that's Edward de Vere's father making a will whose executor was Robert Dudley. Robert Dudley being Sweet Robin, the Queen's special favorite. Yes, uh, Robert Dudley, who later became the Earl of Leicester and was the Queen's longtime favorite. Some people say he was her lover. We don't really know for sure. But at any rate, Dudley gained a great deal of power over Oxford's lands. Oxford, of course, being 12 years old, was a ward of the Queen and being a noble. So the Queen gave Dudley lots of power over Oxford's lands, and it looks like the predatory Dudley just used it the way he wanted and wasted a lot of Oxford's inheritance while he had control over it. Sounds very much like what Claudius may have been doing to Hamlet. So you think Robert Dudley might be showing up to some extent in the Claudius character? It's interesting the parallels that are there. There were even rumors about Dudley, or Lester as he later became, being an expert poisoner with designs on the crown. Again, that's starting to sound like Claudius in Hamlet. No kidding. There were rumors of Dudley being a poisoner? I do know he was rumored at the time to have killed his wife, who conveniently tumbled down some stairs to her death right around the time he was hoping to marry Queen Elizabeth. But is there any real reason to think that he was involved in the Earl's death? Well, you know, we don't have any historical evidence to say for sure. It is odd that the Earl of Oxford, 16th Earl of Oxford, 
died five days after he wrote this will. Oh, just five days. That does put it in a bit of a different light. Yeah. Suppose that Edward de Vere suspected Lester of having poisoned his father. And suppose that Edward de Vere was the man who wrote Shakespeare's plays. This would be a great way to take revenge. Cast Lester as the horrible villain in the greatest play of all time. What better revenge than a revenge play? Or you could say he's having the ultimate poetic justice. (sighs) Anyway, so we've got Robert Dudley possibly showing up as Claudius. And also, you can see some of Gertrude in Queen Elizabeth. Again, there's a parallel here. Edward de Vere was a ward of Queen Elizabeth from the time he was 12 until he was 21 years old. So that's kind of like a mother-son relationship. And you would think that a mother would be looking after her child's inheritance, make sure that he got what was coming to him later on. Well, Elizabeth was really looking out more for her favorite, the Earl of Leicester, than she was for de Vere's benefit. And it's very similar to what happens with Gertrude and Claudius. Gertrude hastily marries Claudius, not really thinking about what effect this might have on Hamlet's inheritance. So there's a parallel there also. Let's take a moment to delve more deeply into this, because I understand people have identified several similarities between Edward de Vere's life and the situations and characters in Hamlet. So while we're here, what are some of these other parallels? Well, I think one of the main ones is it's been recognized for a long time that Polonius is a satire on Lord Burley. Lord Burley was, of course, the most powerful man in England during Elizabeth's time. He was her right-hand man, her secretary, treasurer, a spy master. And, of course, we see in Hamlet that Polonius is a spy master. You see him sending one of his spies to spy on his own son while he's away studying in Paris. Well, Lord Burley did exactly the same thing. He sent one of his spies to spy on one of his own sons when he was away studying. Some other reasons that people have for linking Burley and Polonius is that the name Polonius may have been based on a couple of Burley's nicknames, Paulus and Pondus. And in the first quarto edition of the play, the character's name was Corambus, which may be a pun on Burley's Latin motto, which was Cor Unum Via Una, meaning one heart, one way. So Corambus, meaning double-hearted? Exactly, yes. And also we know that Burley wrote a set of rules for his son that included such maxims as, towards thy superiors, be humble yet generous, with thine equals familiar yet respective. Wow. Yes, this may bring to mind when Polonius says to Laertes, be thou familiar but by no means vulgar. De Vere would have known of Burley's precepts, but they weren't published until 1618, which is long after Hamlet was first published in 1603-1604. We don't really have any way of knowing how the man from Stratford could have found out about this. So we're talking again about an access problem, where there's information in the plays, but we're not sure how William from Stratford would have known about it. Exactly. Back to these parallels. It's so interesting that the real-life Burley wrote these Polonius-like maxims to his son while he was studying who he was spying on, exactly as in the play. So how does this fit in with De Vere? How would he have known about these? Would he have read them? Was court a pretty small world? Oh, yes, but there was much more to it than that. Burley became Edward de Vere's guardian from the age of 12, when de Vere's father died. Oh, if he grew up with Burley, then he didn't even need to read these. He probably would have received the same sort of advice himself on an all-too-regular basis. Right. And not only that, later on, de Vere married Burley's daughter, So Burley was his father-in-law. So they had a long and not always easy relationship. 
So in the Oxfordian theory, in real life, Hamlet marries Ophelia. Uh, many people who have studied this believe that Ophelia is based on Anne Cecil, who was Burley's daughter and that De Vere married. And there's another parallel between Oxford's life and the play Hamlet. I think this is very interesting. In the play, Hamlet is abducted by pirates, but he's set free and left naked on the shore of Denmark. Well, that's not in any source version of the story, but guess what? Edward de Vere was abducted by pirates and set free naked on the shore of his home country, England. Well, this just keeps on going. So the correspondences include matched pirate abductions. I'll just go through the cast list here. Edward de Vere as Hamlet, Lord Burley as Polonius, Anne Cecil as Ophelia, Robert Dudley as Claudius, the poisoning usurper, and Queen Elizabeth herself as Queen Gertrude. This is seriously fascinating. We've wandered off course a bit, so let's return to the law. We've seen so far how ecclesiastical law informs the scene of Ophelia's burial, how inheritance law themes pervade the play and form a substantial part of Hamlet's motivation and explain some of his preoccupations. Let's turn now to homicide law. For a play with this many murders, it seems like a pretty apt topic. Yes. Well, Thomas Glenn Watkin wrote a wonderful article on Hamlet and the Law of Homicide in 1984. And what Watkin reveals is that the Law of Homicide was basically going through a sea change during the Elizabethan era. And if I can explain what the differences were, I'll talk about what the old rule was, the medieval rule, as opposed to the modern rule that was developing. And the medieval rule was that when you considered whether a person had committed a crime in killing someone, what you looked at was the legal status of the victim. So, for example, if you killed someone who was trying to break into your house at night, or you killed a prisoner who was escaping, or uh, you killed a prisoner who tried to assault his jailer, that was all right, because the person had basically abandoned his right to be protected under the law by his actions. So these people were not what they called the king's lawful subjects. That was a key phrase. If the person wasn't the king's lawful subject anymore, it was all right to kill them. Now, that might seem fairly workable in a way, except you get into certain things like, well, what if you kill somebody by accident? Let's say you're cutting down a tree and the tree falls and somebody happens to be walking nearby and gets hit by it and killed. Well, there was no intention to kill the person, but that didn't matter. You didn't look at intention under the medieval rules. You looked at the victim's legal status and somebody who's walking in a forest minding his own business and walks near where a tree is being cut down is still the king's lawful subject. So it's more about results. It wasn't so much about the offense committed against the victim, whether intentional or accidental, but more that you were removing a servant from the king's employ. Exactly, yes. You were depriving the king of one of his subjects, and so you had to pay for that. One of the changes in modern law over medieval times is we start to look at state of mind. We don't just look at what happened. We looked at what the person intended to do, which you can usually infer by the circumstances under which it was done. Another thing under the old system, and this may seem surprising, but killing in self-defense was usually still a crime. Just because two people got in a fight, they got in a brawl, let's say, a sudden brawl, you couldn't necessarily determine who was at fault. And if you killed the other person to keep him from killing you, well, he hadn't actually committed a crime yet. So uh, you had deprived the king of one of his subjects and you had to pay for that. Now, usually you could get a pardon from the king if the jury said that you acted in self-defense, but you would still lose all your goods. Those would be forfeit to the crown. So that's the old rule. 
Now, the new rule, and really this is something that is with us today. This is how the modern rules of homicide began to be formed. The new rule was you started to look at the killer's state of mind, or the mens rea, as we say in legal terms. And this was very well explained by Sir Edward Cook. That's spelled C-O-K-E, but it's pronounced Cook. He was a, a great legal writer, and he basically defined the new law of homicide in his Third Institute, where he said, murder is when a man unlawfully killeth with malice forethought. So basically, he's looking at premeditation. You're planning to do it. You purposely kill someone. And also, it was when you did it cold-bloodedly, like you, you had time to think about it. It wasn't just in the heat of passion. You had time to think about it, and you still went ahead and did it anyway. And that's what murder was. So now, it's a whole new era we're looking at the person's intentions. Well, this changes things. If you kill somebody by accident, again, there's no intention to kill the person, so that's not going to be considered murder. If you kill somebody in self-defense, again, that's not going to be considered murder because your intention was not to kill them. Your intention was merely to protect yourself. So that changed the whole way that we look at murder. And this is really the new formulation of murder is pretty much with us today as, as Cook defined it. So homicide law was evolving to emphasize intent and to focus on the killer and his mindset rather than the good subject status of the victim. Now, where do you see this reflected in Hamlet? Well, the thing is, it appears that the author of Hamlet, whoever he was, understood the changes in the law. And he incorporated these into some of the homicides that happened in the play. Now, one of the changes that the new law would bring about is that if you were insane, that was a complete defense against murder. Because again, you're looking at the killer's state of mind. Well, a person who's insane does not have a state of mind, as we said before about suicide, where they can be held responsible for their actions. So if you're insane and you kill somebody, that's a complete defense that you were insane. How does this apply to Hamlet? Well, what does Hamlet do? He pretends that he's insane. When he kills Claudius, that will be a complete defense for it. Now, as it turns out, he never actually has to use that excuse for killing Claudius, which happens at the end of the play, and Hamlet's death follows shortly after. But it comes in very handy when he accidentally kills Polonius, because he can say, what I have done, I hear proclaim was madness. And so he asks Laertes forgiveness for killing his father and says, look, I was insane at the time. I didn't know what I was doing. And that was accepted. People would understand that he's not going to be prosecuted for killing Polonius because he was insane at the time. But actually, Hamlet has another defense for killing Polonius. And this has to do with making it look like an accident. Now, it's very interesting the way Shakespeare slightly changed the part about killing Polonius from the way it was in some of his source materials. And the Saxo Grammatica story of Hamlet, which goes back to the Danes, was written around the 12th century. The counselor who listens in on the scene between Hamlet and his mother hides under some straw. And the Hamlet character sees him and takes a sword and goes and kills him. And in the Belforest version, which was in the 1570s, the counselor hid under a quilt. Now, what does Shakespeare do? Shakespeare has Polonius hide behind an heiress, which is a tapestry that's hanging. Now, why would he do this? What difference would it make? Well, let's go back and look at what if we'd been under the old rule, the medieval rule? Would it make any difference whether Polonius is hiding under a quilt or behind an heiress? Well, under the medieval rule, we looked at whether the victim was the king's lawful subject. Well, wouldn't make any difference. If Polonius is hiding under a quilt, he's still the king's lawful subject. If he's hiding behind an heiress, he's still the king's lawful subject. Either way, you kill him, it's a crime. 
But let's look at the new rule. Now we start looking at intent. If Polonius is hiding under a quilt, it's going to be obvious to anyone that that's a person hiding under the quilt. But if you've got him hiding behind an heiress and Hamlet sees some rustling in the heiress, he could think that maybe a rat is climbing up it. And so he could take out his knife and be stabbing at the rat. And that's actually what he says as he's stabbing. He says, how now? A rat. Dead for a ducat. Dead. So it's not just Hamlet tossing a final insult at Claudius or Polonius or whoever he thinks it is. Yes, he's also creating for himself a legal excuse that he thought he was killing a rat. Because the way the law worked, suppose you tried to kill a person, but you somehow missed and killed another person. Well, that was no excuse. You can't say, well, I didn't mean to kill that person. As long as you meant to kill a person, you're still guilty of homicide. But if you thought you were killing an animal, and it turns out that you're actually killing a person, then there's no intent to kill a person. You're not guilty of murder. So the fact that Shakespeare changes the story and puts Polonius behind an heiress instead of under a quilt allows for Hamlet to have this legal defense that he was not intentionally killing a person. He was trying to kill a rat. So he's got these two excuses. Between the madness and the rat, he's covered. Yes. And so it shows that the author of the play was aware of the changes in the law and was actually using them to create some of the fact patterns in the play. I understand that in source versions, Omelette, the Hamlet character, pretended to be an imbecile. But Shakespeare changed it and invented the madness for reasons that have never been fully clear, other than that it was a good disguise behind which to make his plans and to taunt Polonius. But this approach makes a really convincing case that he uses the madness strategically as a defense for anything that he might do. Yes. Yes, I think it's very interesting to me, you know, having taught Shakespeare in the law, once you start to understand the law in the play, it always illuminates the plays. You understand them better. You understand why some of the fact patterns are there that you didn't understand before. Now, are there any other instances of Hamlet using legal defenses in subtle ways as he works to avenge his father's murder? Yes. Well, Watkins' article goes through all the murders in the play and discusses them one by one. So it's very interesting. So I won't go into all of his examples here, but one of them is Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Of course, you know, one of Claudius's schemes to do away with Hamlet is to send him to England, and he's going to be accompanied by Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, who have an order that they will give to the King of England that says that Hamlet is supposed to be executed. Well, of course, Claudius was thinking ahead when he wrote this, because what he's going to do is he's going to have Hamlet killed outside of the jurisdiction of Denmark. So that means that Claudius cannot be tried for the murder in Denmark. But of course, Hamlet can use the same justification, because what he does is, while they're at sea, he finds the order and rewrites it so that it says Rosencrantz and Guildenstern should be executed. Well, he's at sea, so he's also not in the jurisdiction of Denmark. He can use the same or a similar type of argument to what Claudius would use to get out of being culpable for that. So once again, not a rash act. Now, how does homicide law relate to the poisonings in the play? Well, Watkin points out in his article that Cook's Third Institute lists four kinds of poisoning. Three of them are used in the play. One of them is gusto by taste, so that's the poisoned wine that Claudius prepares for Hamlet, but actually it's Gertrude who ends up drinking it. Another is contactu by touching, so that would be the poisoned sword that's used on Hamlet, Laertes, and Claudius. And the other one would be supostu, which is with a suppository or the like, and that would be the poison that Claudius pours in his brother's ear before the action of the play begins. 
So there are these three kinds of poisoning that are used in the play. And of course, it's Gertrude who gets the poison eventually that Hamlet should have gotten. Now, what's interesting about the law of homicide is that there were statutes that said there were at least two kinds of homicide that were presumed to be with malice forethought. And that would be willful poisoning, where you purposely poison someone. And when you use a sword on somebody who does not have a weapon, or at least has not drawn his weapon, it's interesting when you look at the final scene where Hamlet kills Claudius. So what happens there? Well, Hamlet learns that Claudius has poisoned his mother, that he has been involved in the plot to have the poisoned sword, which is going to cost Hamlet and Laertes their life in a very short time. So Hamlet, he knows that he only has a little bit of time left, and of course he's furious about finding out all this, and he just lunges his sword at Claudius, and then he makes him drink poison. Now you would think from the way this is usually performed and from the situation that this is an act that's in the heat of passion. But what's interesting is according to the law, like I said, there are two things that are considered premeditated murder. One is willful poisoning. Well, that's, that's what he does. He makes Claudius drink the poison and stabbing somebody who's unarmed or hasn't drawn a sword. Well, there's no indication in the play that Claudius has a sword on him or that he's drawn it. So these seem like acts of impulse, but they're classified as premeditated. I guess here they're actually both. He's sort of improvising with whatever's at hand a way to carry out his previously formed intention. It's interesting, too, because it's such a change from his earlier strategy of complete defense. Now it's almost like complete offense, just doing as many things as possible. Is that maybe a way of announcing to the world or to the ghost of his father that he's done with full intent the murderous task that was set before him? Well, yes, it's very interesting. And it's also interesting that the author happened to choose those two particular ways of having him kill Claudius, both ways that the law would say are premeditated when it, it doesn't seem like it's premeditated under the circumstances. And one of the things Watkin points out is that one of the great themes in Hamlet is the deceptiveness of appearances. And so something could seem to be one way, but really be something else. And that's a point that's made by the way Shakespeare has Hamlet bring about the death of Claudius. You'd have to be pretty familiar with legal details even to be able to pick up on that. Exactly. Well, so far in our look at homicide law in Hamlet, we've seen how the law had changed to focus on intent, how Hamlet's madness was a complete defense against murder, how his rat-killing backup plan would have cleared him of the semblance of intent, and then how the final scene in Hamlet is almost a textbook look at the various manifestations of malice forethought as it was understood in that era. Looked at so carefully, it's hard to miss the author's strong interest in the law. So tell me about this from the authorship perspective. Devere had legal training. I assume this would have included homicide law, or did that have any particular relevance to his life as with inheritance law? Actually, Devere did have an experience with homicide law. When he was 17 years old, he killed a man who was a cook. Why? What happened? We don't know exactly what happened, except that Devere's sword somehow pierced the cook's femoral artery and killed him within minutes. Now, it probably helped that Devere was an earl and that his guardian was Lord Burley, who was a very powerful man. The coroner's inquest is very interesting. What it found was that the cook was drunk, and I'm going to quote part of it, and that the cook, not having God before his eyes, but moved and deceived by diabolic instigation, ran and fell upon the point of the Earl of Oxford's foil and gave himself one fatal stroke. But that would be, say, off in Dendo. Yes, exactly. It's, I think that what happens is 
that when we have the gravedigger scene and they're talking about say offendendo, say defendendo, of course they're getting it all mixed up. This is a parody on the legal reasoning that was used to basically save Edward de Vere's neck. Wow, what a strange and sad story. Yes. And yet another situation where the law actually ends up adding comedy to something that's otherwise completely awful. Right. Now, we know Shakespeare the writer loved to name the unnamed, and I've got to say, say offendendo is just about the perfect term for the act of jumping to one's death upon someone else's sword. Yeah, and it's also interesting, it's kind of a parody, too, on the legal treatises of the time, because what they tended to do was talk about suicide in exactly the same terms that they talked about homicide, completely ignoring the fact that in suicide, the murderer and the victim are the same person. So it's kind of funny, there's a parody on that when uh, one of the gravediggers say that, well, she must have drowned herself in her own defense. The idea that you could kill yourself in self-defense, I guess to keep yourself from killing yourself, you know, it's, it's just a mind-bogglingly circular reasoning. And they would have a, sort of the same thing in some of the legal treatises of the time. But De Vere, of course, was trained in the law by his tutor, Sir Thomas Smith. So he may have studied homicide law already. And if he hadn't, he certainly uh, had a reason to do so now once he got into hot water with the law at that time. Yeah, that would be a pretty powerful motivator. Well, so far we've looked at ecclesiastical law, inheritance law, and homicide law. Are there any other kinds of law that show up significantly in Hamlet? Well, several authors have looked at Hamlet from a more philosophical viewpoint and looked at Hamlet as a commentary on law as an instrument of justice and revenge. And they've said, for example, that the law is a way of channeling revenge. In other words, you have the courts decided so that people don't just, you know, get into these big feuds where there's revenge uh, by one family against another and it goes on generation after generation. Some writers who have talked about this would be writers like Dan Kornstein, who's written a book, Kill All the Lawyers, Shakespeare's Legal Appeal. And another would be Richard Posner, who's a judge with the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, and he's written a book called Law and Literature, in where he talks about Hamlet quite a bit. And one of the things that they talk about is that Hamlet is really like a good lawyer who sees both sides of the issue and looks for the evidence. So some people are looking at Hamlet himself as kind of a lawyer. Yes, they especially appreciate his reflectiveness and his ability to see both sides of an issue, which is the way great lawyers think, not necessarily mediocre lawyers, but great legal minds would think uh, is they're able to see both sides of the issue. And that's, of course, reflected in the to be or not to be soliloquy. Now, there's also another recent book that I think is very good on this, Kenji Yoshino's book. He's a professor at NYU Law School. And... I think it's interesting the way he talks about Hamlet's delay in killing Claudius. And he says there are really two parts to it. And you could describe this as the guilt phase and the penalty phase, which is the way some trials are divided up. First, Hamlet's got to be sure that Claudius is really guilty because people in the Elizabethan age would immediately be suspect of something that a ghost told them. Because the devil could, of course, assume any guise that he wanted and what you're seeing could really be the ghost who's getting you to kill an innocent man so that you will go to hell. So Hamlet's got to be sure he's got the right man. And that's why he does the play within a play, The Mousetrap. And he sees by Claudius's reaction that Claudius really is guilty. So number one, he knows he's got the right man. That's the first step. Well, the next step is going to be the punishment phase. Now, he could have done that almost immediately afterward when he sees Claudius at his prayers. 
but he decides, wait a minute, I'm not going to do that. This man sent my father to purgatory. And so in answer to that, I'm going to send him to heaven because he's praying when he gets killed. Not a fitting punishment. Better to get him while swearing or gambling. Exactly. And as Yoshino says, it's not just that Hamlet wants a life for a life. He wants a soul for a soul. Wow. He wants it to be the perfect revenge. So he puts it off. So it doesn't come until much later. So finally, Hamlet is going for the perfect justice when he gets Claudius at exactly the right time, which he does. He gets Claudius when he's just committed murder, and he also stabs him and makes him drink poison so Claudius won't be saying any prayers while he dies. Oh, to stop up his mouth so he can't pray and get to heaven. That is inspired in a diabolical way. Yes, I think that's a very brilliant way that Yoshino put it in his book, which, by the way, is called A Thousand Times More Fair, and I do recommend it. So anyway, but what happens is, because of Hamlet's delay, we have all these other people getting killed that probably wouldn't have died if he had just taken his revenge on Claudius when Claudius was at his prayers and he hadn't been so concerned about having the perfect justice. So it does show that sometimes you can be committed to an ideal and not willing to compromise and it can actually lead to much greater destruction than if you'd been willing to compromise a little bit. Now, having looked at how Shakespeare uses legal terms and concepts in his writings, what do you think this says about the author's knowledge of the law? Well, you know, in this talk, we've basically just been looking at the law in Hamlet. I mean, we did discuss a few other plays a little bit, but Shakespeare's knowledge of the law just permeates the plays. It permeates them in so many ways. And often it's not that obvious. You have to actually know what the law was a lot of the time to realize how clearly acquainted with the law the author was. And the more you study the law in Shakespeare, the more difficult it is to believe that these plays were written by somebody who just heard about a few court cases in the Mermaid Tavern or talked with a few lawyers now and then about some of the cases that they knew about and that sort of thing. It seems to be somebody who really understood the law, understood the basic workings of the law, and was very familiar with the law. Now, let me just point out something about what I said about inheritance law. I talked about the Hales versus Pettit case. And I mentioned that, you know, people would have known about the suicide of James Hales and so forth. That was very well known. But not many people would have known the legal points that I was referring to when I was talking about how Claudius might have used certain legal points from Hales versus Pettit to enhance his claim over Hamlet's lands. And there were two written opinions about the legal points in Hales versus Pettit. They were in the notebooks of Sir James Dyer, who was one of the judges in the case, and then there were the reports of Edmund Plowden. Now, Plowden's reports would have been published, but it's unlikely that somebody without legal training would have a chance to read them. And I should also point out that they were not published in English. They were published in Law French. What is Law French? Well, Law French, you don't hear that term too much, and most people don't realize that Law French was the official language of the courts at that time. And it was a corrupted form of Norman French that had basically been the legal language since the Norman conquest. So Plowden wrote in law French, and he was not translated into English until much after Hamlet was written. So the English translation of the notebook couldn't have been a source for Hamlet. The author would have had to know law French to quote it directly? Yes. And also, Plowden's report is about 20 pages long. It's very dense. It's very difficult to understand if you don't have legal training. And it's impossible to understand if you don't understand law French. Also, Sir James Dyer's reports 
much shorter and easier to read, but also in law French, and also not in published form. They were just copied and passed around in legal circles. So the idea that the man from Stratford, who was a sometime actor, would have read these, would have understood these, it seems a little unlikely. It seems to me much more likely that somebody like De Vere, who was trained in the law from the time he was a child, not just a teenager, but even before he was a teenager, he was trained in the law. That was a central part of his training under his tutor, Sir Thomas Smith. And then De Vere also attended the Inns of Court in London, where the law was taught. So here's somebody who had real legal training, formal legal training, and it seems to me that he's a much better candidate for having the kind of knowledge that you would need to have written this play than the man from Stratford would have been. Well, if De Vere had been brought up in the law since childhood, and then later given a full legal education, he certainly would have had the capacity to think in legal phrases. And the personal connections are really interesting. The inheritance struggles, the brush with homicide law, the pirate abduction, and then the way that some of the key characters of Hamlet could be said to parallel his own family structure. And with William Shakespeare from Stratford, while there aren't any records of his schooling, some biographers have suggested that he may have worked as a law clerk and gained his expertise that way. What do you think of this possibility? Well, that's a very interesting theory. Unfortunately, nobody's ever found anything to back it up. And Stratfordian scholars for the last century or so have been ransacking the archives in villages where Shakespeare might possibly have been a law clerk, and they haven't been able to find any document that would attest to his having been a law clerk. Now, if he'd been a law clerk, obviously he would have signed something sooner or later. He would have been a witness to a will or something like that. Nothing like that has ever been found. So it's an interesting theory, but absolutely nothing has ever backed it up. Well, I feel like you've given us a sense of the various ways that Shakespeare uses law terms and concepts, and how subtle some of the references are. It's been fascinating to see how the themes of law pervade Hamlet and illuminate so many details and bring out such interesting new dimensions in the characters and relationships. And it's been fascinating to look at how all of this relates to the issue of authorship. I'm definitely beginning to understand why it's been difficult, especially for lawyers, to believe that someone without any legal training either could have or would have written the law so extensively into plays and into poetry. Certainly something worth further consideration. Exactly, yes. You know, Jennifer, if I could just add one thing before we end off. For a long time, I didn't look into the authorship question because I was told that there was no question. And I've noticed that most of the people who say there's no question don't talk about the evidence. And I think that we have to keep an open mind about this. We have to realize that there is room for reasonable doubt and that we should never just take authority's word for it. We should always question authority and we should look further on our own. And I think it's a, a really an interesting question because the more we understand about who wrote Shakespeare's plays, the more we will understand about the creative process. And that's why I find this subject so interesting and why I continue to look into it and I find it continually fascinating and I, I urge other people to look into it as well. Beautifully put. Thank you. And so what are you working on next? Well, actually, I, I'm working on a number of things. I think you mentioned earlier that my article on the law in Hamlet is going to be in Brief Chronicles, which is an online journal. I'm also writing on other subjects about the law. One of my specialties is juries. I recently published an article on a jury's right to decide both the law and the facts. I'm working on other things about juries. I'm working on some things about treason. Recently, I gave a presentation about the Tudor law of succession, and I'll probably be turning that into an article. So a number of projects that I'm working on. 
And people can probably best keep up with what you're doing by checking your website, which again is sites.google.com slash site slash Thomas Renier. What would you suggest to some good resources where people can learn more about what you've discussed today? Well, I think a good place to start is a website that's put up by the Shakespeare Authorship Coalition. And this is a group of people who have doubts about the traditional theory about the Stratford man. And you can find it on doubtaboutwill, that's one word, doubtaboutwill.org. And that's a good place to start. It's got a fairly short summary of the problems with the Stratford theory. Some other websites that I would suggest, and probably you can find these most easily by just Googling these phrases, but Shakespeare by another name is one about De Vere as the author. Also the Shakespeare Fellowship website, the Shakespeare Oxford Society website, and the De Vere Society, which is in England. And uh, by the way, I should just mention, uh, as a matter of full disclosure, I am on the board of trustees of the Shakespeare Fellowship. And we'll have links to those websites on the blog at theshakespeareunderground.com. Now, another possible resource for exploring these ideas, the Oxfordian theory of Edward de Vere as Shakespeare now has its own movie. Have you seen Anonymous? I have seen the movie Anonymous. I think it's an excellent movie. It's a lot of fun. Of course, it plays fast and loose with a lot of historical details. But of course, you can make that criticism of any Shakespeare play. It's great that it gets the idea out there that people are thinking about it and considering the possibility that Oxford may have written the plays. Well, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much, Tom, for sharing it with us. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. And thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Links to the books, articles, and websites mentioned today are on the website at theshakespeareunderground.com. Those that are specific to Shakespeare and the law are on the post for this episode. And then general Shakespeare and authorship links are now located on our resources page. The Shakespeare Underground will be back soon with a new episode. Meantime, I'd love to hear from you. Please feel free to post comments, or you can reach me directly at jennifer at theshakespeareunderground.com. Our theme song is A Midsummer Night's Dream by Dokashitiru via ccmixture.org under a Creative Commons license. Thank you very much. <laughs>